Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to another season of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-3, Baghdad and Mongols. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. After uniting the Mongol tribes, Genghis Khan begins to conquer lands in China and Central Asia. The Mongols defeat and conquer the Muslim Khwarezmian Empire in 1223. The Mongols also begin conquering Russia, going as far west as the Balkans. Monke Khan becomes the new Great Khan in 1241 and orders his brother to expand into Mesopotamia. And with that, Let's discuss the Mongol siege and conquest of Baghdad. The Abbasid Caliphate At the time of the Mongol invasion of Iraq, the Abbasid Caliphate had been in a long state of decline. Food prices were high, its currency was nearly worthless, and the military was dreadfully underpaid. In fact, some soldiers even rebelled against the caliph. Gangs of thieves roamed freely about the city, attacking caravans, shopkeepers, and civilians. There were also reports of weird natural disasters, like floods and thunderstorms, that were not common for this region. Though he was still regarded as the spiritual leader of the Muslim world, Caliph al-Mustasim's authority did not go much further beyond Baghdad. It would be a mistake to think the Mongols just suddenly showed up on the Caliph's doorstep. The Muslims of Baghdad and the Abbasid Caliph were well aware of the Mongols and their ferocious reputation. They had long been receiving news of the Mongol conquest in Central Asia and the Caucasus. The citizens and leadership of Baghdad figured it was just a matter of time before the Mongols arrived in Iraq. As Mongol territory crept closer and closer, the men of Baghdad debated if they should make Hajj. If they made Hajj, there was a good chance they would not be available to defend the city when the Mongols arrived. Most of the men opted to stay in Baghdad and be ready to fight. This was not a one-time decision, though. The men delayed making Hajj for years with the excuse they wanted to be available if the Mongols arrived. This may have been a mistake. Had they made Hajj, they may have been able to notify and network with other Muslims about the impending Mongol threat. The Muslims' decision not to make Hajj meant they lost the opportunity to build alliances that might have helped them against the Mongols. Furthermore, most of these men did not survive the Mongol conquest. That means many of them died without making Hajj, even though they had the opportunity to do so. The Caliph and the Khan 
As mentioned in the previous episode, Monkey Khan was now the great Khan of the Mongol Empire. He appointed his brother, Hulegu Khan, to rule over the Mongol territory in Persia and the Middle East. This territory would become known as the Ilkhanate. The word Ilkhanate comes from a combination of the words Ulus, which means people, and Khan, which means ruler or chief. Hulegu Khan's descendants who ruled the Ilkhanate held the title Ilkhan. Hulegu Khan was given the task of expanding the Mongol Empire into Iraq. In early 1258 CE, he led his army out of his capital, Hamadan, in northeastern Iran. As he closed in on Iraq, Hulegu Khan sent messages to Caliph al-Mustasim demanding his submission. When the Caliph received these messages, he conferred with his wazir, or advisor, on how to respond. The wazir, a Shiite named Mu'ayyuddin ibn al-Qami, advised the Caliph to send Hulegu Khan gifts instead. As the Caliph was preparing an expensive gift package to send to Hulegu Khan and hopefully open negotiations, another bureaucrat gave him conflicting advice. This second government official was a Da'widar. Da'widar is a Persian word that literally means carrier of the ink pot, but it can also mean litigant or claimant. It was initially reserved for the highest state bureaucrats in Baghdad. But over time, it became a title for high-ranking military commanders. This Da'widar advised the caliph not to send such an expensive gift to Hulegu Khan. He warned the caliph that the wazir, Ibn al-Qami, was only looking out for himself. Caliph al-Mustasim decided to listen to the Da'widar instead of his advisor and sent a smaller package to Hulegu Khan. This insulted the Mongol leader who rejected it and sent the Caliph a new demand. This time, Hulegu Khan upped the ante and demanded the Caliph send him hostages. And he did not want just any hostage. He wanted either the son of the highest-ranking Da'widar or a low-ranking Da'widar. Once again, Caliph al-Mu'astasi missed the mark. Instead of sending what Hulegu Khan asked for, he sent some other government bureaucrat. With this final insult, Hulegu Khan stopped sending messages and proceeded to march towards Baghdad. As the Mongols approached, the Caliph sent an army led by his Da'widar to meet them. The Abbasid army headed out towards Bakuba, about 25 miles north of Baghdad. The First Encounter Muslims who later wrote about the approaching Mongol army described it as a spreading swarm of locusts. The Abbasid army was already at a disadvantage being so heavily outnumbered. But 
there were problems within the Abbasid Caliphate that made the final outcome inevitable. Even if every Abbasid soldier was available to fight, they would have still been outnumbered by the Mongols. But to make matters even worse, the Abbasid army was depleted because so many troops refused to fight for the caliph. They refused to fight under his banners because he had not paid them in such a long time. There were even reports that some soldiers were forced to beg for food. As the Abbasids rode out to meet the Mongols, they crossed over an empty canal near the Tigris River. That's when they first encountered the Mongols. Not the entire army, just their vanguard. The Abbasids engaged the Mongol vanguard and they did pretty well. They fought the Mongols, killing several of them and forcing the others to flee. Excited about this initial victory, the Dawidar sent the heads of the slain Mongols back to Baghdad, making it seem as if they were victorious. But then, the Dawidar took a portion of his army and went in pursuit of the fleeing Mongol vanguard. In doing so, he fell victim to one of the Mongols' classic ploys. As they pursued the Mongols, the Dawidar and his troops were separated from the main Abbasid force. And soon, they found themselves surrounded by the entire Mongol army. This was a classic Mongol trap, and the Abbasids walked right into it. This trap required an advanced unit or a vanguard to attack the enemy and then pretend to flee. The enemy would give chase, separating themselves from the main army. Then, the entire Mongol army would appear and wipe them out. The Mongols closed in on the Dawidart and his small forest and killed most of them. A few Abbasid soldiers survived this ambush and rushed back to the main army. They informed them of what happened and the true size of the Mongol army. Now, the Abbasids' already low numbers were even lower. They had no other choice but to retreat back to Baghdad and try to hold the city. But the Mongols had outsmarted them. Remember that empty canal by the Tigris River they'd crossed earlier? Well, while they were fighting the Mongol vanguard, Another group of Mongols came behind them and flooded the canal. The Abbasid army was trapped behind the canal and still several miles from Baghdad. As the Mongol army closed in, some of the Abbasid soldiers tried to swim across the canal, while others tried to ride their horses across the canal. Most of those who tried to cross were drowned. The rest were captured. And, as mentioned in previous episodes, the Mongols had no use for POWs. The Siege of Baghdad With most of its military destroyed, all Baghdad could do was focus on defense. 
The Mongol army soon arrived, virtually unchallenged at Baghdad. They occupied the western part of the city where the inhabitants had already fled. The Mongols set up their siege machinery and began bombarding the eastern side of the city where the caliph resided. In addition to launching stone boulders, Mongol archers also sent volley after volley of arrows into Baghdad. One of these arrows went through one of the palace windows, struck and killed the caliph's infant daughter. Heartbroken and distraught, the caliph ordered all windows in the palace boarded up and fortified. Hulegu Khan finally arrived on January 19, 1258. He immediately ordered a bridge built over the Tigris River and stationed soldiers on it. I want to read an excerpt from an essay called Al-Hawadithul Jamia, describing Hulegu Khan's arrival in the siege of Baghdad. He arrived behind the outskirt of Baghdad with soldiers whose numbers cannot be counted and whose supply lines never ended. The gates of the city wall had been closed, from which he understood that they were too weak to meet him. He ordered to dig a trench and to build a wall with the earth from the trench around Baghdad. Gates were then put in and the Mongol commanders positioned over them. They then built shields for the mangonels and set up the mangonels and catapults. Then they showed all they had while the inhabitants observed them from the wall upon which they had also installed mangonels. However, these were faulty and useless. As we can see from this excerpt, the caliph's negligence of his military had now come back to haunt him. The Abbasids had mangonels on the city walls, but according to this essay, they were in bad shape and useless. As the siege intensified, some people tried to escape the city by ship. As they sailed down the river, they were blocked by the bridge Hulegu Khan had ordered built. The Mongol soldiers on the bridge attacked the ships and killed everyone aboard. On the 14th of Muharram, the caliph's wazir, Ibn al-Qami, began going through the city, encouraging the people not to resist the Mongols, not to fight back, and that peace was soon to come. Interestingly, Ibn al-Qami was accompanied by several Mongol officers while he did this. And he was saying this while Mongol arrows and missiles were bombarding the city. This incident, along with some others, led many later Muslim scholars, including Ibn Taymiyyah, to accuse the Shiites of collaborating with the Mongols. On the 17th of Muharram, Ibn al-Qami went to the caliph and informed him that Hulegu Khan wanted to meet him. This was a nice way of saying the Mongol ruler demanded the caliph surrender and stop delaying the inevitable. Caliph al-Mu'astasim tried to avoid this and sent one of his sons instead. But Hulegu Khan refused to accept this and he repeated his demand for the caliph to come meet with him. The next day, the caliph walked out of Baghdad to meet Hulegu Khan. Two days later, on the 20th of Muharram, the Mongols destroyed a large section of the city walls. 
Their manganels had been pounding one of the city gates called Babul Halba and had finally brought it down. This signaled the end of the Abbasid resistance. The caliph was in Hulegu Khan's hands. The Abbasid army was all but destroyed, and Baghdad's gates had been knocked down. Over the next two weeks, several Abbasid commanders, bureaucrats, and nobles, including the caliph's son, came out to surrender to Hulegu Khan. They brought all of their wealth and belongings, which, of course, the Mongols confiscated. The Sack of Baghdad Baghdad belonged to the Mongols. Hulegu Khan entered the city with his retinue and his soldiers. You are already familiar with the Mongol reputation. You know they showed no mercy to any city that resisted them. Hulegu Khan had the caliph's relatives, attendants, and all of their children and slaves taken into custody, transported to a local cemetery, and executed. Then, all of the Muslim military commanders and government bureaucrats who had recently surrendered and turned over their wealth were executed. Then, Hulegu Khan had many of the higher-ranking officials within the caliph's administration rounded up and executed. Then, on the fifth day of the month of Safar, 656 A.H., Hulegu Khan ordered a 40-day sack of the city. And that's when all the true horrors began. Forty straight days of killing, pillaging, and raping. Let's read another excerpt from Al-Hawarith al-Jami'ah. The inhabitants of Baghdad were put under the sword and were subjected to 40 days of continuous killing, pillaging, enslavement. And they tormented the inhabitants using different ways to torture and extort their wealth with severe punishments. They killed men, women, youth, and children, so that only a few of the city's inhabitants and those that had come to seek refuge there from the slaughter survived. An exception were the Christians. They were assigned guards to protect their houses. Many Muslims sought refuge with them and were saved. There was a group of merchants in Baghdad that used to travel to Khorasan and other places that had contacted the Mongol commanders earlier and had obtained letters of safe conduct. So when Baghdad was conquered, they went to the Mongol commanders and treated with the guards to secure their homes. Some of their neighbors also found refuge with them and were saved. Some people, mostly Muslim-hating Islamophobes, used the Mongols sparing the Christians as evidence that Hulegu Khan had special disdain or hatred for Muslims. But it wasn't that serious. One of his wives was Christian, and she convinced him to spare the Christians of Baghdad. That's all there was to it. On the 14th day of Safar, Hulegu Khan ordered the caliph's execution. Baghdad was still being sacked, but Hulegu Khan had gotten everything he needed from the caliph, and there was no point in keeping him alive. However, the Mongols had a superstition about spilling royal blood. 
Hence, instead of beheading the caliph, they wrapped him up in a carpet and trampled him to death with horses. Hulegu Khan also ordered the caliph's oldest son executed as well. The rest of the caliph's children were simply taken captive. When the 40 days were up, Hulegu Khan ordered the pillaging to stop. Those who had survived the massacre, either because the Mongols spared them or they'd been hiding during the 40 days, came out to a horrendous sight. Much of the city, including the caliph's mosque, was burned. A horrible stench hung over the city. Tens of thousands of dead bodies were piled up in the streets. Many of these dead bodies had been disfigured by soldiers riding horses over them. During the 40-day period, the rains had fallen, draining the fluids from the mangled bodies into the water system. This led to many of the survivors getting sick. Most modern estimates state that somewhere between 800,000 and 1 million people were killed in Baghdad. Hulegu Khan appointed a new governor over Baghdad. Then he ordered the former Abbasid wazir, Ibn al-Qami, to remain in that position for the new governor. Then Hulegu Khan returned to his capital in Iran. With the fighting and pillaging over, the new administration, which was now working for the Mongols, began rebuilding the city. They went about the business of appointing new bureaucrats, police chiefs, imams, judges, and all the other things required for a functioning society. They repaired damaged buildings and fixed the roads. They reopened schools, monasteries, markets, and bazaars. In time, Baghdad came back to life and became a functioning city again. But this shows that once the Mongols had captured a city, they wanted to rebuild it as quickly as possible so they could actually benefit from it. After Baghdad, the nearby cities of Hilla and Kufa sent representatives to Hulegu Khan, voluntarily submitting to his authority. He accepted their submission and they began paying him tribute. The city of Wasid, however, was not spared. The Muslim leaders of Wasid fled with their families. The Mongols besieged and pillaged Wasid just like they did with Baghdad. Many Sunni Muslim scholars later accused the Shiites of Iraq of either collaborating with the Mongols or betraying the Caliph. Their evidence for these accusations include Number one, the caliph's wazir, Ibn al-Qami, walking through Baghdad with the Mongol officers. Number two, many of the administrators appointed by the Mongols after the conquest of Baghdad were Shiite. And number three, the cities of Hilla and Kufa, which had been spared by the Mongols, were predominantly Shiite. Allah knows best if this is true. But the Shiites of Iraq were in a much better political position after the Mongol conquest. The Abbasid Caliphate 
With the fall of Baghdad, the Abbasid Caliphate effectively came to an end. However, several members of the Abbasid royal family managed to escape the devastation and found refuge in other Muslim cities. One of these people who escaped was a man named Abul Qasim Ahmed. Abul Qasim Ahmed was the son of an earlier caliph named Al-Dhahir. Abul Qasim Ahmed was also the uncle of the last Abbasid caliph, Al-Musta'sim. Abul Qasim eventually made his way to Cairo, where the Mamluks ruled. The Mamluk reign covered much of Egypt, Palestine, and the Levant. The Mamluks installed Abul Qasim as the new Abbasid caliph, and he took on the royal name Al-Mustansir. But this was mostly a ceremonial position, and Caliph al-Mustansir had no real power. The Mamluks simply used him to legitimize their own authority. Nonetheless, Caliph al-Mustansir's line did carry on the Abbasid lineage. The Abbasid Caliphate was completely ended when the Ottomans defeated the Mamluks and conquered Cairo in 1517. In the next episode, we will conclude our discussion of the Mongol Empire. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, Open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sirosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 3. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf had appointed Muhallab ibn Abi Sufra as governor of Khurasan. Muhalab was on campaign in Khurasan near where Uzbekistan meets Afghanistan. 
In Iraq, Caliph Abdul Malik offers to depose Hajjaj ibn Yusuf if Ibn al-Ashath and the Peacock Army stands down. However, Ibn al-Ashath and the Peacock Army rejected this offer and the fighting continued. And with that, let's discuss the history and legacy of Muhallab ibn Abi Sufra. If you've been following Islamic History Exclusive, an Islamic History podcast long enough, you know that we've discussed, first discussed Muhallab in the Ibn Zubair series. His first appearance that I could find, at least, was in Ibn Zubair episode 5, which I released around June 2019, almost two and a half years ago. But we've never really discussed Muhallab's origins or where he came from. So let's go ahead and do that now. Muhallab was born in Oman in 632 CE, which happened to be the same year that Prophet Muhammad died. His father was named Abu Sufra and he was from the Azd tribe of Oman. Abu Sufra migrated from Oman to Tawaj in Persia before settling in Basra around 36 AH. According to the Encyclopedia of Islam, 2nd edition, Abu Sufra, that is Muhallab's father, was a weaver, but he was also a sharif or a noble from amongst the Azd. And since Muhallab's family was from Oman, this made Muhallab and his family Qahtani Arabs or Southern Arabs. We have long discussed the friction between the Northern and the Southern Arabs. That is the Yemeni Arabs, which Muhallab was, and the Northern Arabs, which is what the uh, Banu Umayyah and their supporters primarily were. In any case, Muhallab, as a young man, he had joined armies under the Khilafat of Umar ibn Khattab as well as Ali ibn Abi Talib. Of course, the armies of Umar ibn Khattab were going into Persia, Iraq and Persia, whereas Ali's army were most likely fighting against the Khawarij as well as Muawiyah and his forces. During Umar's caliphate, uh, Muhallab participated in some campaigns going as far as Sistan, which, as we mentioned in earlier episodes, is close to the border of modern-day Pakistan. So Muhallab had traveled very far as a soldier. However, he first made his name in Khorasan. The first campaign that Muhallab took part in in Khorasan came in 50 AH during the reign of Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. He also fought in Khorasan again in 56 AH and a third time in 61 AH during the reign of Muawiyah's son, Yazid ibn Muawiyah. In this third time in Khorasan, during the reign of Yazid ibn Muawiyah, Muhallab had gone to Khorasan as a commander and he laid siege to the city of Khwazm in Uzbekistan. Yazid ibn Muawiyah's governor of Khorasan was a man named Salm ibn Ziyad. Salm ibn Ziyad appointed Muhallab as his deputy governor over Khorasan. However, when Yazid ibn, ibn Muawiyah died, the second fitna started. That's when Ibn Zubair rebelled against the Umayyad authority. Umayyad authority broke down because there was no suitable successor for Yazid ibn Muawiyah. And 
Yazid's governor of Khorasan, Salm ibn Ziyad, was forced out by the people. When Salm ibn Ziyad was forced out, Muhalab, who was his deputy of Khorasan, also fled, and this allowed a man named Ibn Khazim to take over Khorasan, and Ibn Khazim, as we mentioned, eventually joined Ibn Zubair's forces. This is a long story. I'm not going to go through, all, through it all now. Go back to the Ibn Zubair series and take notes there if you want to know the details, inshallah. 